Hello, it's Thursday 5th of May. I'm Hannah Pearson. On today's show, Gary Bauman and I will sift through some of the travel industry's buzzwords and regularly used phrases along the road to recovery. So let's get started. This is the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Hello, wherever you are in the world, and thanks for listening in. Well, Hannah, can you remember what you were doing way back on the 7th of February, 2020? (laughs) COVID-19 was starting to dominate the global discussion, but on episode six of the Southeast Asia Travel Show, we played a game of buzzword bingo. We created a list of the hot and not so hot terms and phrases in the travel industry and discussed whether they would endure or if they were just a temporary sign of the times. So now, two years and three months later, it's time to reassess the lingo of travel and see which phrases are being used most frequently as travel activity starts to pick up, and reassess a few of those from our original list back in February 2020. So Gary, what is at the top of our our travel bingo list? Well, again, it's a sign of the times, I suppose, given the fact that most of Southeast Asia has... Has, has reopened now. So the big talk is of one thing, isn't it? Travel recovery. Yes, it's all about that, isn't it? It's all about travel being on the up, which is a refreshing um, change from you know travel on the down and downturns in travel and everything else. So I suppose it's a good thing, but definitely starting to get a little bit sick of this one, I think. <laughs> I think that's because we've used it so much and we've been talking about it for so long. We, it was a hoped for recovery, wasn't it? Then there was a possible recovery. And now the kind of hard work has actually started. We're in that process of you know, how is this recovery going to unfold? But yes, travel recovery, number one. I think that's the, the talk of the town. Definitely. And I think the other word that I'm starting to get a, a little bit fed up with is endemic. <laughs> so, I mean, that one only, when did, when did we start talking about endemicity? Maybe middle of last year, I think. Yeah, I think, well, Singapore started it, didn't they? So I guess that was probably just before what, Singapore National Day. They were talking, that was when they were going to start the, the road to endemicity. Um, but it's certainly become a, a popular topic, particularly in Thailand. I mean, any travel headline in Thailand now uses the phrase endemic in terms of moving towards this endemic uh, future where the country will learn to live with COVID-19, you know, whether this is scientifically accurate is, is open to huge debate, particularly as the, the WHO is nowhere near talking about endemicity right now. But individual countries seem to want to use endemic as a way to let their public know that safety and, and health is, uh, is less of, you know, an in-your-face everyday thing anymore. Risky, perhaps, but uh, certainly seems to be, again, a sign of the times. Yeah. For sure. We weren't talking about endemic two years ago, were we? I think it was pandemic instead. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Which brings us to number three, Hannah. And this one, this has lived with us for, for two years in a hoped for uh, sense, but now it, it's starting to get a lot more media coverage, isn't it? Yeah, revenge travel. Um, I think I barely, and, and pent up demand, kind of hand in hand, but both of those phrases are kind of used interchangeably. Um, And this is something I think we have been asked about and we have talked about right from the beginning of the pandemic, isn't it? Will this uh, pandemic create this pent-up demand? Will we see the return of revenge travel? The jury is still out on that one. What do you think, Gary? 
Well, it's an interesting one. I think re revenge travel actually emanated in China. There was this uh, you know, this notion on social media in China that there was going to be a revenge spend, that you know the pandemic wasn't going to last too long, a few months perhaps, and then the money that people had saved over those few three, three or four months or five or six months or whatever, you know, they would revenge spend it on travel and, and consumer spending. But you know, that, that dissipated over two years, didn't it? Um, it? It just wasn't the same scenario anymore. But during that time, we have obviously heard about so much about pent-up demand. We read a lot of travel sentiment surveys, or we did. There's, there's fewer of them now, now that people are actually traveling, although there are still sentiment surveys in China. But yeah, it's all about the pent-up demand, how that bottleneck is going to be reopened, and what the requirements are in terms of getting more people to travel. There are different interpretations of it. It's, it's very, very hard to, to kind of quantify or what's happening with pent-up demand. Um, but it's certainly a buzz phrase. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm still a little bit on the fence. I mean, you know, I still feel, yes, we're going to see this this initial burst of pent-up demand and revenge travel. But is that going to continue throughout the rest of the year? I'm a little bit pessimistic about it, actually. When did you become the pessimistic one, Hannah? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I kind of agree with you. I mean, I've done a couple of interviews recently, and, you know, it really is... I wouldn't say it's been predictable. That's unfair because nothing's predictable at the moment. Mm. But certainly the travel patterns in the past two months have definitely been about reconnecting, haven't they? Visiting mm -hmm. family and friends, reconnecting with people that you're in and places that you haven't seen for so long that are so important to you in your, in your ordinary life. How that then translates into an actual tourism recovery. I mean, there are some places, perhaps Bali and Thailand, where it's slightly different. But, but overall, we're looking at really transitioning back to a tourism economy, which I agree with you. I think that, you know, there's a bumpy road up ahead. Yeah, which uh, probably brings us to uh, another buzzword that we, we were guilty ourselves of using last last week, I think, or the, the week before, headwinds. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, of course, there, we, we're going to face the headwinds of, uh, of economic recovery or not. And inflation and the Russia-Ukraine war and everything else. So there are certainly a lot of headwinds um, facing this, this pent-up demand. Um, and I don't think these headwinds are going to go away anytime soon, are they? No, they're cumulative and, and they, you know, they're, they're starting to build. So you know, they're mostly related to different economic sectors, particularly supply chains, as you mentioned there, inflation uh, and the, the effects on cost of living. But, you know, some of these things, again, jet fuel is one of those that probably is going to have a bigger impact in the summer as well. But these are starting to buy. As you're seeing central banks now starting to raise interest rates. Uh, these are going to have impacts on cost of living and, and available uh, money to invest and money to spend. So, yeah, headwinds are definitely there. It's, it, I would say it's, it's less of a buzz phrase as something that nobody really wants to actually admit is, is real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next pick then for our, our buzzword bingo, dynamic COVID zero. So this is one of your contributions, Gary. Uh, explain the dynamic part because the COVID zero part I'm with. <laughs> well, this is China. You know, this is China's linguistic response to some of the, the challenges that it's facing with its, you know, its COVID zero policy it's had right since the Wuhan outbreak, right at the start of COVID-19 when it locked down Wuhan, the big city and Hubei, uh, Hubei province. And other cities during the, the past two years to stamp out outbreaks at source. The main fear of China's government is a national outbreak with you know, an, an aging population, worries about 
the effectiveness of its vaccines. It doesn't yet have an mRNA vaccine, although it is actually testing one right now. Um, so that's a big con concern. So it was always been touted as this COVID zero country. And as a kind of like semantic change that the government started using the phrase dynamic COVID zero, um, just to try and show that it's not just rooted in this dogmatic stamp out. I think it realizes that at some point it has to open up its economy and it has to change the way it looks at COVID zero. But it uses dynamic COVID zero really as a kind of semantic at the moment. Because if you look at what's happening in Shanghai, you look at what's happening now in Beijing, it's pretty strict, it's pretty stringent. And, and the way they're dealing with it is perhaps more tight than, than we saw in Southeast Asia over the past two years. Next up for a buzzword bingo choice has to be uh, booking bounce backs. Um, and we, we are seeing this uh, everywhere, um, but particularly um, after the WTTC uh, Global Summit uh, a couple of weeks ago in the Philippines, we certainly saw a lot of reports coming out from that about how you know bookings are back X hundred percent year on year, etc. I mean, my bone to pick with this is, of course, you know, the percentage increase is going to be enormous if you're working off of an extremely low base. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. You know, if it's very difficult now to, to retrospect any statistics in travel after what happened over the past two years. So if you're looking at um, percentage growth on anything, yeah, you're right. It's, it's, it's always going to look extremely positive. I guess you can take this two ways. You can say a booking bounce back is either comparative when you're looking at where it was before, or you could just say that actually, you know, volumes of, of bookings are going up. And that's very, very positive. You could probably combine the two, I suppose. Certainly, that the, the World Travel and Tourism Council event in the Philippines, what was that, a couple of weeks ago, was hugely positive. The whole sentiment was about travel coming about worldwide, although there were some uh, comments that were made by some of the WTTC leaders about Asia Pacific and the concern that the region can't really recover without some of its major markets, particularly uh, China and Japan, Taiwan as well, being more fully open. So, you know, there are drawbacks. But yeah, I mean, there are some parts where you, where you are seeing strong, strong travel bookings. And Europe, I think, is one of those, North America, uh, Latin America, I think, too. So it's uh, piecing together the global jigsaw is quite difficult at the moment, isn't it? But the, the travel spin tends to just gloss over all that and use, as you say, booking bounce back. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it is a positive thing. And I think, you know, it is nice to be reading positive things in the press. I guess there is always that danger, though, that governments start to believe their own press, you know, when, when they are talking about, oh, we have seen a 200% increase or a 1000% increase year on year and, and forget that it was this, such a low base and that the tourism industry as a whole is still really, really struggling to recover. So yes, your international arrivals might have increased by over a 1000%. But if that number is still only in the thousands, that's not going to help a, a very, very sick tourism industry. Yeah, absolutely. I 100% agree. It's about managing expectations. And as you said, you know, this, this was always going to be gradual and, and a phased recovery it wasn't going to happen straight away. And it's still early days. I think that's one of the things, you know, we keep reiterating this all the time that Southeast Asian countries, most of them have only really just reopened. It's very, very early days. And, and trying to project into the future. I think the WTTC projected 10 years ahead. And you think right now, everything we've learned over the last two years, projecting 10 years ahead, you know, that's a huge risk. Yeah, and I think our listeners know how we uh, feel about forecasts. <laughs> <laughs> um, next, buzzword, travel sentiment. And like you were saying, Gary, this is almost a little bit 
less now. We, we are seeing fewer consumer sentiment surveys coming out, as you said, because people are actually starting to travel now. So there are actual statistics about what people are really booking instead of thinking about booking. But again, you know, everything is so up in the air still that I think destinations are relying a lot on travel sentiment surveys and those feelings, I suppose, that, that consumers have, whereas we know that those don't necessarily translate into reality. I totally agree that I think there are now kind of two kinds of travel sentiment surveys, one that will have incredible utility going forward and one that's perhaps less so. There was a, a widely reported travel sentiment survey from China this week, uh, which, you know, it was some very, very interesting. Dragon Trail International has been doing this survey of Chinese travelers over the past two years. And they, I think they do it every six months. And it's quite interesting how the sentiment has changed over six months. But as we know, China is still closed. And so that sentiment survey is simply a snapshot in time. And, you know, by the time China reopens, you know, things could have changed again. What I do think will be important going forward is working out travel sentiment from people that are actually traveling. I think this is des- this is something destinations should definitely be doing, is actually surveying travellers in their destinations over the next few months and find out not just what they want and what they enjoy, but what they don't want. I think we're going to learn a lot more about the patterns of travel. You know, we keep hearing that travellers have different expectations, that they have different wants and needs in travel, but that's got to be proven. And it would be very interesting to actually do real on-the-ground surveys and find out what travellers are actually feeling when they're travelling. Yeah, agreed. I think that that is really needed, that on-the-ground actual take on it rather than just what we think you know everybody says oh travelers are going to want to be outdoors more and they're going to be more interested in sustainability but is that really the case when they actually get out there or are we going to see people falling back into those same old patterns you know and like you said we destinations need to monitor that they need to have that awareness of actually what's really going on yeah and so the next buzzword this is one i use a lot i have to say but it is important because it is the the oil that greases the wheels of, of, of travel and tourism, and that's air capacity. Do you use that one, Hannah, quite a lot? Yeah, I do. It's key to the the recovery, <laughs> there we go, another buzzword, um, of the region. Without air capacity, we've seen, you know, for example, Cambodia reopened. Um, they had one of the least restrictive entry requirements out of all of the Southeast Asian countries. One of the things, I mean, there are a few things that held them back, but one of the things that held them back was air capacity and air links and if you don't have that in place um, you are not going to be able to see international tourists come in and therefore you're not going to see a sustained recovery. It, I mean it's an interesting one air capacity because it, you're absolutely right it is needed and air capacities and, and building back flight frequencies but I, I, I find it kind of interesting when airlines are making these projections that by the end of the year they're going to be flying x percent of their air capacity from 2019 so that tends to vary at the moment from somewhere between 50 and 70 percent 70 certainly being the upper level for this year you know that's the the capacity of the available airline seats that they will be flying defining demand and the numbers of passengers that can be filling those seats that tends to get overlooked sometimes so you know it's okay that airlines are going to be flying this capacity but how do you actually drive that demand i think that's quite quite important i guess from the airline's perspective you know them saying that they will be flying x percent of their capacity by the end of the year is basically a confidence building process to try and say to consumers there will be flights available if you were thinking of traveling you know there's going to be uh, plenty of seats for you to book but i guess we do need to start looking a little bit more actual bums on seats really the actual numbers of passengers that are flying yeah i mean i've certainly noticed that as well isn't it? like you said there's a lot of talk around flying at x percent capacity 
not necessarily how many passengers or the load factors even of of those so yeah there's a big gap a big big gap I think between those two but like you say you know they do need to add in this capacity they do need to talk about this capacity to you know sustain their investment for one um, and also to encourage those consumers to to book further ahead yeah and so on the air capacity theme let's move to something that is a super hot topic right now and that is ultra long haul that is definitely a media buzzword right now it is and um, I, I was looking at a very interesting post from Stuart McDonald who's been on our uh, our show a number of times all about the the sustainability aspect of that or not when it comes to ultra long haul uh, which, which was really interesting I'll, I'll drop a link to that in the show notes as well but certainly yeah there's, there's a lot of buzz buzz around this from from Singapore Airlines flying this ultra long haul route to the US and I think is it is it Qantas who've just announced their new ultra long haul route yeah, Qantas has been planning its Project Sunrise for a few years. This was before the pandemic. It's now announced that from 2025, I think, it, it plans to fly direct from Australia to London and to New York City, 19-hour-plus flights. And then perhaps in future after that, they would launch Paris and Frankfurt as well. I read Stuart's post as well. I thought it was very, very interesting. There's been a lot of talk about this in, in the media um, and particularly on social media about the environmental aspects of ultra-long-haul flights because those flights have to carry so much more fuel, which is so much heavier. They have a much bigger impact on emissions. I think I think Stuart called it enviro-vandalism, which was a great term. I'm not sure that will come a buzzword, but maybe it should. But yeah, I agree. This is, this is going to be a, a debate because I think more airlines are going to be doing this in future. So our next one, and this, this is a, a TAT invention, Blecation. So you alerted me to this one, Gary. What does blecation mean? <laughs> a TAT invention. We've got to add that to the list, I think. Um, yeah, well, blecation is something that they were talking about in the Thai media earlier in the week, that the Tourism Authority of Thailand wants to really reanimate the uh, East Asian market. It knows that it needs travelers back. It's getting some travelers from Japan, but not enough. And obviously, it's not getting hardly any from China at the moment. So it's come up with this idea of blecation, which... Is, is a bit like the old leisure term, which is another one is horrible, but it's, it's B-L-E-cation, which stands for business, leisure and vacation. So leisure, I guess. Basically a campaign that it's going to be running in Japan to try and encourage more corporate travelers who need to come on business to Thailand to spend more time, uh, perhaps bring their families and have a vacation and, and some leisure as well as their business travel. But Blecation. I mean, that's horrible, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I don't quite understand the, the differentiation between leisure and vacation either. Some, someone clearly has a, a differentiated opinion somewhere. Moving on. Uh, next buzzword, visa on arrival. And of course, this is becoming a lot hotter topic now that borders are open. Yeah, I think Malaysia's been talking about this this week with regard to Indian travellers, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. They are talking, I mean... We have seen within the region there's really this renewed focus and uh, almost starting to get aggressive, I think, on trying to attract the Indian market. And, of course, one of the big hindrances for Indian travelers to come to Southeast Asia, to many countries here, is having to have a visa, having to apply for that and all of the the pain and the paperwork and the time consumed that is involved with that. So visa on arrival is something that's being touted right now. And it was something that 
they had proposed for Malaysia in particular, they had proposed for the Visit Malaysia year 2020, the doomed Visit Malaysia 2020 year as, of course, the pandemic hit. But that was something they were going to do for the Indian and the Chinese markets, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is basically going back to pre-pandemic, making it much easier for the key markets for, for travellers to arrive into, into destinations, um, much more easier, more convenient and much faster. There was also some talk about this in Indonesia. Indonesia, I think, extended the number of airport gateways that would offer visa on arrival. But there was also talk two or three weeks ago about them raising the price threefold, I think, of visa on arrival. What happened to that, Hannah? Yeah, I mean, that was another of these miscommunications I think it was just one of these rumors that got out of hand and it looked as though and it was being circulated on uh, on mainstream media that the visa on arrival fee was like you say going to in- increase uh, three times of course we've also seen Indonesia previously communicate and again uh, miscommunication about how they don't really want budget travelers so you could kind of put two and two together and think well maybe this is logical you know they've talked about how they don't really want budget travelers and now they're talking about increasing this visa on arrival fee you know three times but of course it was later refuted um, and it just again goes to show you know, these miscommunications all of these rumors um, and how willing also the media are to just jump on anything like this um, and you know put it around without necessarily checking uh, the veracity of it. Yeah, totally agree. So let's uh, let's talk tech, Hannah. We've got a couple of your choices here for the buzzword list. And the first one, obviously such a hot consumer topic right now, that is metaverse. <laughs> so like you see, I've, the couple that are kind of hand in hand in a way, you, you see them being thrown about at the same time. So we've got metaverse and we've also got cryptocurrency. And these are two... I mean, obviously, two quite separate topics that somehow also end up being merged together in uh, in articles and in tourism board strategies. But certainly, we're seeing this focus now. I wouldn't even say focus. We're seeing this interest, this initial interest from tourism boards about the metaverse. So I think the TAT launched something. It was a campaign about durians, I think, and you could go and experience them in the metaverse last week. We have seen TAT talking about TAT coin um, as a cryptocurrency. Um, We have seen uh, Santiago Uno, the tourism minister in Indonesia, also talking about investing quite substantial funds into the metaverse. Um, So there is this interest, but I get the feeling that everybody is very interested and nobody quite knows what to do about it. Yeah, it it is an interesting concept because, I mean, it's going to work very, very well, I think, for, for consumer brands and for services but but for tourism it's it's an unknown concept because i mean you can travel virtually but it's not going to be the same as actually the whole point of travel which is to physically remove yourself to a different location you're right there about cryptocurrency that is certainly getting involved nfts as well non-fungible tokens those seem to be everywhere right now and those are all very closely linked up to metaverse but this this idea that we will live in we will live our lives in mixed reality in future that will involve tourism, not just perhaps when we're at home, but also when we're actually in destinations that we will use a lot more virtual and augmented reality and an alternative living. It's, it's just kind of a scary concept, but, but it's very real. I mean, I think it's definitely going to happen. But how tourism boards tap into that, I think it's going to be quite difficult to see. There will, there will have to be, I guess, a lot of partnerships with other types of brands to make it, uh, to make it valuable. Yeah, absolutely. I think the TAT was even talking about setting up its own private company, I think, that was going to just deal with Web 3.0 um, and, you know, Metaverse and 
and all of this and looking at those those applications for tourism i mean i think it will take one tourism board to really crack it and figure out how they can make it work for them and then we will see the others follow like sheep <laughs> all in a row but yeah i mean it warrants it its own episode really and i'm sure we will cover it in the in the coming months but this is a, a buzzword for sure metaverse cryptocurrency yeah i would agree and just as an adjunct to that i mean this is very much i would say primarily targeting the, the gen z demographic you know the, the younger consumers and an interesting adjunct to that in china over recent months is how gaming e-gaming has been uh, incorporated into tourism some hotels now are using spaces that they couldn't use such as spas and, and bars and things like that, and turning them into e-gaming centers. Um, so there's a big push towards e-gaming and tourism in China, and you know that that marries perfectly with the metaverse. So I think that's something definitely to watch out for. Definitely. So let's move to um, the more sustainability kind of angle, and we've seen lots of buzzwords coming up around that, haven't we? Um, so my pick for this that we're seeing a lot, and it, it's different to sustainability, but linked as well as community-based tourism now and of course you know this this is a very positive thing this is what we want we want tourism to be able to contribute to people's livelihoods and to impact them in a positive way but whether all of the community-based tourism projects that are being talked about by tourism boards are really authentically community-based tourism or whether that's just the the trendy word that they have decided to use is uh, is a whole other matter yeah, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because once it gets onto the tourism board radar, I agree with you, you, then you start to get the actual original concept diluted, which mostly was through NGOs and community-based tourism. We've talked about that on, on the show before. Absolutely, you're right. And, you know, helping communities through tourism in rural areas is a very important aspect and something that really the industry can help to give back. But it's also something that's very difficult to scale up because as soon as you start scaling up community-based tourism, it, sem- it simply becomes almost on the level of mass tourism. It's a tricky one um, because it's something that, you know, we would definitely support the development of it in future, but it's just how it's going to be managed. And, you know, I have to admit, I don't really trust the tourism boards to to handle this particularly effectively or, or sensitively. Yeah, and I mean, and linked to this is also uh, tourism villages. And I've, I've added that in because that is a San Diego Uno tourism minister for Indonesia that I was just mentioning, his, his absolute favorite topic to talk about I think it doesn't go uh, I don't go a week um, writing my my weekly report about uh, news from Indonesia without mentioning tourism villages Um, and again it's this concept of you know community-based tourism developing these these villages but like you said the challenge is then how do you keep it to be authentic without uh, over commercialization and um, keeping what what was originally special about these villages special that's the challenge. Yeah, I totally agree. The guiding principle behind it, you'd, you'd absolutely have to support, you know, helping underprivileged communities economically develop from, from what they have. Um, the problems of cultural misappropriation and also, you know, as you say, over commercialization are, are very, very real. So it's, it's a really fine, fine balancing act, I think. So related to that one is another new buzzword, perhaps, which is hotel sustainability basics. Um, And this is something that the WTTC launched at their conference in Manila a couple of weeks ago. Um, And the whole concept was to provide the global hospitality sector with a baseline of positive actions that they can take to ensure that they meet at least a kind of minimum 
requirement um, for sustainability. What's your take on that, Gary? It's 100% needed. I think it's it's an initiative that we've been waiting quite a long time for and probably would have happened, I think, before the pandemic, except for the fact that two years this was delayed. I mean, you could argue that it should have happened five, 10, maybe even 15 years ago. But the fact that it's happening is definitely a good thing. I think there's buy-in for it. I think there's buy-in for it in the industry. I think there's buy-in for it amongst younger consumers, particularly. Travelers want to know that they're, the places that they're staying and the places they're traveling to aren't harming the, the environment adversely. There's a big difference between not harming the environment and actually working to protect the environment. There's a big difference there. Uh, and that's where we kind of get into the difficulties of greenwashing. But, you know, I think it's something everybody should support. I, I think the industry will get behind this. I think it's something the hospitality industry knows has to happen and I think wants to happen. You know, I think there is this global push towards we have to look after the planet a bit better and, and tourism should definitely take a stand on it. Yeah. I mean, last week I was staying at a resort on the east coast of Malaysia and I was kind of horrified at the end of the holiday to count up the number of plastic bottles that we had got through of, of water and there was no kind of alternative to using those. You just think, gosh, there has to be a, a different way. And I, you know, just something as small as that, you know, if hotels are starting to commit to that, at least as a basic uh, to provide an alternative to all of these single use plastics, that would be a huge step forward. I agree. You know, there's a whole spectrum of issues that the hospitality industry has to look at. Food waste is another one, particularly the overuse of things like uh, air conditioning. Uh, which, you know, the emissions levels there. there. There are a lot of different things that need to be done, looking more perhaps at solar power, particularly in our region. You know, you should, hotels could definitely use more more solar power. And that's starting to happen. I think we've seen that in Singapore. So the faster we move on this, I, I think the better. And I, I do think we'll see buy-in. I do think we'll start to see developments, but whether it will be across the board, the big players will have the money to invest in this, but the smaller players, I guess, again, will get left behind. Yeah. And what's your last pick, Gary? So my last one is a counterpoint, really, to what we've been talking about in terms of tourism villages and community-based tourism, and that's tourism mega projects. And I think that's something we're going to see a lot of over the coming months. There are a lot of big investment tourism projects were on hold during the pandemic, and we're starting to see that, particularly in Vietnam. Now, some of these projects that get announced, we don't know if they'll ever happen, but they do seem to, to get coverage, and they do seem to be always by huge local companies that just see a future in high-value tourism, high-spend tourism. So we've seen, for example, in tourism in Vietnam recently, the idea of a space tourism project on Phu Quoc. We've seen two new huge luxury cruise liners being commissioned for Ha Long Bay. I think also in Phu Quoc, there's um, a big development, which is a lotus-shaped offshore island, very reminiscent of what happened in Dubai and other places like that. They are environmentally pretty unsustainable, they are going against everything that we say in terms of sustainability basics, but they are an eye on tourism growth in the future and they're going to happen. So that's the world we live in. You know, we, we, we talk about hotel sustainability basics and then we talk about these huge new uh, polluting projects. What's the answer, Hannah? Yeah, exactly. And there isn't an easy one, is there? I guess in the end, it will come down to what travelers are wanting to do. And there will be that segment who is still want to go visit these mega projects i suspect so on that perhaps gloomy note um we thought it would just be fun to just name a few of the buzzwords that made it to the list two years ago um so we had buzzwords like super spreader as in super spreader events and of course this is right at the beginning of the pandemic so we were seeing that real 
concern behind how events were suddenly spreading it. And of course, back then, spreading it probably meant spreading it to 10 or 20 people, uh, not the perhaps thousands or tens of thousands that we see nowadays. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And we had a few that crossed over, didn't we? So we we discussed ultra long haul last time. We discussed sustainable travel. We discussed responsible tourism. As you said earlier, Hannah, you know, these things get kind of named in different ways, but you know, the, the overriding principle is the same. And we also discussed leisure or pleasure or however you like to pronounce it. Yeah, exactly. So some things haven't changed. Some things have changed quite a bit. And uh, at least recovery is one of the things that has changed, right? Because if we were still talking about a decline in tourism, I think it would be time to stop the podcast. <laughs> yeah. And what about over-tourism? That's mm-hmm. something we discussed before. Is that coming back, Hannah? Well, we saw that in Boracay, isn't it? We, we were talking about that last week on, on the podcast about that's something that happened in the Philippines over, over their Easter travel. So potentially, potentially in some places, and again, like we were saying, then there becomes that challenge of, have tourism boards really taken to heart promoting uh, lesser visited places? Or is it just going to be those key destinations that are promoted over and over and over again, both to the international market and domestic market? Yeah, totally agree. And so just before we finish, Hannah, you took your first trip for a while last week. Have you got the tourism buzz back? (laughs) I do, yeah. So this was unbelievably the first time I had left Kuala Lumpur for two years since since the pandemic so my last trip uh was to singapore and before that the furthest i had gone um was uh about half an hour away from my house to get my covid jab so <laughs> it, it, it it felt quite uh quite funny at the beginning like oh oh i'm leaving oh oh there's an to just be by the, we went by the sea like i said to the east coast it was lovely seeing that horizon that wasn't a city it wasn't a city horizon. There wasn't skyscrapers. It was just the sea, the sand, the sky. Yeah, definitely. I've got that buzz back. Starting to think, Cambodia next? <laughs> Glad to hear the buzz is back. So that brings us to a close of today's show. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. And don't forget to send us your favorite or least favorite travel buzzwords. You can drop us a message on our LinkedIn page at the Southeast Asia Travel Show. Yeah, meanwhile, you can catch up with the Southeast Asia Travel Show's full back catalogue on our website, www.theseasiatravelshow.com. And of course, you can listen to every single podcast on all the various international podcast platforms. Again, just search for the Southeast Asia Travel Show on each one. And please remember that if you tune in via Spotify or Apple Podcasts, If you could quickly give us a rating and a review, that will help other people to find the show. So that's a wrap for today. And we'll both return next week to talk more travel and tourism in Southeast Asia. We look forward to talking to you then.